0: You know, it's been said that familiarity breeds contempt, and I think sometimes that's true. Two high school friends decide they'll go off to college and they'll room together. But after one semester of rooming together, they can't stand each other anymore because familiarity has bred contempt. Or you learn too much about your hero and then you lose respect. That certainly happened to John Adams, our second president. He really respected Benjamin Franklin, this elderly statesman. But when he went on a commission to Paris, where Franklin was also serving for a while, and they lived in the same residence for a while, he lost all respect. This one who had taught early to bed, early to rise seldom got out of bed before 10 a.m., And there were so many other habits and lifestyle traits that contradicted the principles that that Adams just lost respect and literally began to despise Benjamin Franklin. In his case, familiarity had bred contempt. But I think that more often, familiarity just breeds indifference. Would you agree? I mean, a couple can really be sensitive and attentive to one another when they're dating. But then, after they've been married five years, they can really, really ignore each other. And the sensitivity is gone. Or someone buys a house on Lake George because of the spectacular beauty. But after a few years, they just don't notice the grandeur anymore. I think our goal in life should be that familiarity would breed appreciation. The more we know our family, the more deeply we should love them. And the more Christ-centered we become, the more we should love and appreciate Jesus Christ and his word and the sacrifice he made for us at the cross. There's an old hymn I grew up singing. It says, "Tell me the old old story because each time I hear it it grows more wonderfully sweet." Now it's Christmas time. And the passage we look at today from Luke chapter 2 is one of the most familiar in all the Bible. But boy, I hope that familiarity does not bring breed contempt. I hope no one hears this, and and I know that many of you could stand up and quote this. I mean, if nothing else, you've heard Linus do it on a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Year after year after year. But I hope that something special can happen. I hope we can hear this old, old story again, almost like a child hearing it for the very first time. So as we jump in today, in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I want us to notice how that Jesus transforms some of the people closest to him. And the good news is that he's still in the ministry of transforming our lives today. First, I want you to see that Joseph was transformed from tension to peace. Verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, a friend asked me this week, hey, Luke, you know, the one this book is named after in the Bible, Luke, the human author of this book, tell me, my friend asked, was he a medical doctor like I've heard, or was he a researcher? And I said, yes, he was, because he was both. And as we're going to see as we go through the book, there's a number of little characteristics of this gospel which show us something about Luke's medical expertise. He gave more attention to some medical details and a few other little cool things. But what we're also going to see is that he was a very careful historical researcher. And here he's relating an historical event. He doesn't begin once upon a time, like it's a fairy tale. He specifies definite time, place, people, Augustus, Quirinius. You see, folks, the birth of Jesus is not fiction. It's fact. It's not a cute little warm, cozy myth. No, it's rooted in history. It's rooted in space and time. The people who wrote about Jesus weren't inventing cleverly devised stories. They were eyewitnesses of what had happened and or they had carefully researched it by interviewing the eyewitnesses. It's curious that Luke begins in chapter 1, verse 3, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, in other words, I have done extensive, exhaustive research of this Jesus of Nazareth from the very beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke is both medical doctor and careful Researcher. Now, just a side note here. One of the things that strikes me about the names in the early verses of Luke's gospel is that some of the people who were most impressive and interesting in that day weren't all that interesting or important later. And some of the folks who were kind of nobodies then really became important later. Have you ever thought about that? For instance, Mary. Joseph, Zechariah, Elizabeth, they were nobodies in that day. Nobody would have given them the time of day. They were just not that important, to be honest. But ah, Augustus, Caesar. Now, there's an important person. There's a mover and shaker. There's someone who can get things done. Quirinius, these are the interesting and important people. But you know, today, we name our children, what, Mary, Mary, Joseph, Zach, Liz, James, Peter, John. We name our dogs Caesar, okay? Or Nero. We name our dogs with those names. We wouldn't even give the name Quirinius to a cat because nobody would remember that. It's interesting that God said the first will be last and the last first. Augustus thought he was hot stuff, but he was nothing more than a wisp of lint on the prophetic page. And I tell you this, folks, because we need to remember occasionally that God registers importance and measures it far differently than we do. And I want to say to you tonight that whoever you are, whoever you are this day, God knows your name. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And to you, to him, God is, you are extremely important to God. We read on in verse 3, And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So a census is going on, and I will assure you that this counting of noses commanded by the government was extremely inconvenient to Joseph. Can you imagine? Let's suppose our government suddenly decreed, hey, everybody in the month of January has to make a trip, travel to the place where they were born, their place of origin, their birth, and they've got to register there. Well, for those of you who grew up around here and were born here, that would be awfully easy. But for some of us, that would be inconvenient. I'd have to travel almost 1,000 miles down to Leoma, Tennessee, and then register and then suddenly start back the next day. We'd all be complaining, wouldn't we? We'd be crisscrossing the country, complaining about the price of gas, complaining about the price gouging at the hotels and the long lines in the government offices. It would be chaos, I think that's a bit of what was going on here. Joseph's family, they were from Bethlehem, but he lives 70 miles away now in Nazareth. Keep in mind also that he was self-employed. He was a carpenter. There was no unemployment in that day, no medical leave, no maternity leave or anything like that, and Every day that he's off the job is just a loss of income. There's no sick pay or anything else. And he's going to take a week or more to travel there and then a week or more probably to come back. And to complicate matters, verse 5 says, he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, I believe that Mary probably would not have made this journey unless it had been mandatory. She was too close to giving birth. When the date of the birth is near, you kind of stay near the hospital, near your doctor. You want to be in touch. I understand that some airlines actually do not allow a woman in the third trimester of pregnancy to fly without a doctor's verification stating that she is not in risk of going into labor within 72 hours. Now, in light of all this, I know that some of you are immediately sorry for Mary, and you should be. I am too. But you know who I'm sorry for? I'm sorry for Joseph. I mean, that dude didn't have a clue what he was getting into, I'll tell you right now. He had never traveled with an expectant mother before. And he thinks, well, we're going to live, we're going to be kind of lean and mean on this trip. We're just going to be rather Spartan. We're going to live close to the land. And he shows up at her house, and she's got all this stuff that she wants to take along. And all this is kind of new to him. You know, we've seen these pictures of Mary and Joseph and a donkey, and I always wondered, "Why why the donkey? I mean, the Bible doesn't mention a donkey on this trip at all. Why the donkey? But I think we infer the donkey because of all the stuff that would need to be taken. There would need to be some food taken. There would need to be drinking water, some primitive medical supplies. There would need to be some things, baby items, things for the baby, some blankets and so forth. I'm honest, I feel sorry for Joseph. He's under a lot of stress. This was awkward. I mean, he's never even spent the night with Mary. He's he's, he's never experienced the birth of a baby before or witnessed that. Mary, are we going too fast? Are you sure you're all right? How do you feel? Do you need to stop, you know, and go to the bathroom again or anything? It's just all awkward. And once they arrive, matters get worse. There's no vacancy in the local inn. Have you ever been driving on the interstate or going somewhere and you're just dog tired and you can't find a place to stay? My wife and I are super planners. I mean, we're both hyper when it comes to planning for things. And so if we're going somewhere, we always have hotels booked on. But this time, it was a holiday weekend and we'd been down south to see my relatives and we decided we'd just wing it. Wing it on a holiday weekend. Can you imagine that? We're driving back up I 81 and we've gone hundreds of miles, and I am dog tired. And we think, well, we'll just pull in somewhere. There'll be plenty of vacancies, I'm sure. Yeah, right. Pull in, check hotel after hotel, no vacancy. Then it starts raining. And I'm getting more miserable by the moment. It's now past midnight. And we're thinking, oh, man, there's no way we can make it all the way back to Albany. And we keep driving and driving. And finally, we get the hotels to start calling ahead. I can't believe at this point we haven't gone online and booked a hotel or called in advance, which we would normally do. And there's just no vacancy anywhere. And we start kind of getting frustrated with each other. I mean, there's a poster that says... I've only got one nerve, and you're standing on it. And that's the way we felt at that moment. I mean, it was, it was just rough. Well, I, I think Joseph's frustration is intensifying here. And he says to Mary, I've got bad news. She says, I've got bad news too. I'm starting to have contractions. And so things are just kind of unraveling. Maybe it started to rain. He didn't know what to do. He probably felt like such a poor provider. How humbling to realize that Jesus wasn't too good to be born in a barn. Folks, I've turned down some pretty ratty-looking motel rooms in my day. I don't think I want to stay there. But those places would have looked like a paradise to Joseph and Mary. Mary. And the truth is, to Joseph, it must have looked like everything was just unraveling, just coming apart. But to God, everything was unfolding just like he had planned. Can I say a personal word to you? Whoever you are on this faith journey, at those moments when the stress is building and it seems that life is just coming undone, would you do me a favor? Would you remember Joseph? Because one of the lessons, one of the many awesome lessons from Joseph's life that we need to learn today is that even when things seem stressful and chaotic, God is still at work. You see, the Prince of Peace was about to be born. And Joseph was going to go from anxiety to tranquility, from tension to peace. What he didn't realize at this point is that God was working in ways he couldn't even imagine. Even when he thought, this can't get any worse. What he didn't know is that wise men from far, far away in another country were already probably just about ready to start their trip. And they were going to bring expensive gifts. And the money from those would help pay for all the bills for a couple of years or more. What Joseph didn't know is that even in the midst of the apparent chaos, he was about to become the most famous stepfather in history. You remember that when it seems that You're stressed to the max, and things can't get any worse. In the midst of all this turmoil, Joseph was about to discover the truth of Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. That's the transformation Jesus brought. But secondly, I want you to see that Mary was transformed from pain to contentment. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, let's pause there for a moment. The first time pain is mentioned in the whole Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and it happens to be in relation to childbirth. Here's how it reads. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. So the the pain of childbirth is one of the consequences of living in a fallen and very broken world. It's a part of that curse. And I want you to understand, Mary was not exempt from that in any way. And think of how little support she had here. Her mother wasn't there with her. If she had sisters, there were no sisters there with her. I mean, even her cousin Elizabeth that she was very close to and had spent time with, who seemed to understand probably as much as anyone. She's not even there. There's no medical doctor. It's just Joseph. And he's probably never helped deliver a baby. Besides, she wasn't even really married to him yet. And this wasn't his child. They've never even spent a night together. And she probably wished that he had not seen her like this. And furthermore, she wasn't giving birth in an exactly sterile environment. It was a stinky, smelly stable. And it had been months now since Gabriel had appeared to her and promised that she would become pregnant, give birth to this Savior How lonely, how terrifying, how painful this must have been. But then she pushed for one last time and suddenly the intense pain stopped. There was a brief moment of silence and then she heard a baby squeal and then she heard Joseph say, Mary, Mary, it's a boy and he's beautiful. But they both knew something. Even before the days of ultrasound, the angel Gabriel had told them, you're going to give birth to a son, and he will be great. And for now, the worst was over, and as she held her baby in her arms, the pain was replaced with contentment and joy. You know, I find it interesting that later in his ministry, Jesus said, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her child is born she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. now now let me ask you a question please don't blurt your answer out don't blurt your answer out but all of you who have given birth to one or more children I'm just kind of curious I'm just kind of curious think about this as I ask it when When was your pain replaced with the joy of the birth? When did that happen? For some of you, you might say, oh, immediately. For others, you you might say, well, it it took a few moments, I'll tell you. Some might say, oh, it it was like an hour. Someone might say it, it honestly took a day or more. But I think many of you who have given birth would say, that moment for me was when I held the baby in my arms. And then there was joy, and then I knew that it was worth it all. Verse 7 says, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I suppose that Mary, it was a part of that stuff I mentioned that was taken along that was really, really helpful. I suppose she had packed these things just in case this occurred on the trip. The King James calls them swaddling clothes. What they were were simple strips of cloth that peasant people use to wrap and warm their babies, even today. Uh, You know... uh, Medical staff, when a baby is born, will wrap that baby tightly in a blanket, a very soft cloth. And that tightness, I'm told by maternity nurses, gives that baby a sense of security. Well, 2,000 years ago, they were doing their own form of that. Do you know, folks, pain is intensified at Christmas time, isn't it? Especially emotional pain, relational pain. You envision all these other people around you and you think they're all having fun and I'm not. You think they're all laughing and cutting up and enjoying the season. And so your own emotional pain or your physical pain or your loneliness is intensified by contrast. But I would challenge you today. If you're listening to me now and you're, you're feeling extremely lonely or there's emotional or physical, some kind of pain, I would challenge you to hold on because I believe there's going to come a day. In fact, I know there's going to come a day when God will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for that old order of things has passed away, you hold on. You don't lose heart this season. I love what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Well, we've seen the transformation in Joseph and Mary, but now uh, let's finally focus a bit on the shepherds. They were transformed from fear to faith. And I think there's a very relevant lesson for us here as well. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, let's just pause there a moment. In this culture, being a shepherd was a rather despised and disrespected occupation. In fact, even in the Old Testament, it says that the Egyptian people despised shepherds. And most scholars believe that they had that feeling because Egypt was a place of farming. It was an agrarian culture where crops were put in and and sheep had a habit of nibbling the grass right down to the roots and kind of destroying the land. And so they were despised. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Luke's gospel, says that shepherds had also a reputation for pilfering, for stealing, as they moved around the countryside. In fact, the Jewish Talmud goes further and states that shepherds were so unreliable that they were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. But these weren't just shepherds. These were shepherds on the night shift. And all of you who've worked or who work the night shift know that's usually not the most desirable one. But isn't it just like God? Isn't it just like God? Who does things so differently than we often would. Isn't it just like him to let the first announcement be given to the night watchman? This is good news for all people. Not just the rich like the magi, but the poor and the despised like the shepherds. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Think about that. When Jesus came near, when the supernatural invaded the natural, there was fear. At Christmas, we often sing that hymn, shepherds quake at the sight. Remember that line? Shepherds quake. And these shepherds were fearful. And Jesus still makes some people pretty uncomfortable today. I know some folks who are afraid he's going to rearrange their priorities. Or Jesus makes people uncomfortable when he comes around. Because they're afraid he's going to impact the way they use their possessions. Or he's going to challenge them to swallow their sinful pride. Or some lifestyle pattern. I don't know where you are on your journey. But if you're window shopping Christianity today, I want to tell you something. When Jesus shows up in your life, when he begins to draw you and he's working in your life and heart I want to tell you something, he is going to challenge you. There's no doubt about it, but it's always, 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 always for your good. But he will challenge the status quo, he will challenge our lives. These shepherds quaked with fear. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I love that. This is not a message of condemnation, the angel said. This is a message of joy. This is a message of life and forgiveness. Hey, world, a Savior has come. That means your sins can be forgiven. That means God's got a plan for you. That means he knows about you and he cares about you. And he's doing something about it. Wow. Love's so amazing. So divine demands my life, my soul, my all. So put your confidence in him. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Think of that. The whole sky is ablaze with angels. They just lit it up. And those shepherds, I don't know, but I just got to believe they fell to their knees maybe even wondering if they could be bold enough to look up. But they were motivated to take action, verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, hey, let's get these sheep settled down. They're going bananas. No, it didn't say that, did it? It said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. It's interesting. They had such a dynamic encounter with the supernatural, it motivated them to action. Now listen, that was risky. This was their livelihood. (laughs) A rustler could have come along and stolen or killed sheep. Some of them could have wandered off. A wild animal could have come and devoured some. But they were willing to take that kind of risk. And again, I say, you need to understand that when Jesus begins to come into your life, you may, you may risk some things. At, a, at Grace, we call people who are kind of exploring faith, explorers. They're, they're exploring Christ. And to explore Christ is risky. You may risk reputation. You may risk some certain relationships in order to explore Christ. He will call you to move out of your comfort zone and out of the status quo living. But again, I will say it. Again, I say it. It is always, always, always for your good. These shepherds took a risk and they experienced the most significant event of their lives. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Have you ever wondered how they found the baby? Somebody said, well, there was a star over that step. No, no, that came later. The star came later. There's no star now. Was there a big blue ribbon around the barn? said, congratulations, it's a boy. Is that how they found it? You know how I think? They found it. I think this little town was abuzz with the word of this. If a baby's born in a hospital, nobody takes notice. Nobody talks about it much except the family. But boy, if a baby is born in a taxi cab or in a restaurant somewhere, man, it's all over the news. Everybody's talking about that. Did you hear about that? When a baby's born in a barn... I've got a feeling in this little town, all these tourists who'd come to register, they were buzzing about this. And again, this is not in the Bible, so don't go quoting this. But I just like to envision that probably about one in the morning, when Mary and Joseph had finally kind of gotten everything settled down and ready to try to get a little bit of sleep, they were so exhausted all the cows all the cattle were kind of settled down. There was a knock on the door. Uh, excuse me. Uh, it, we're, we're a bunch of shepherds. I, I, please don't think we're crazy. And, and we're not drunk, I promise. But uh, we've seen an angel. In fact, the sky just lit up. And we've we've seen things this night that we've never seen before and we just couldn't help but come and explore this. Tell me, sir, is there a baby in here? And what father can resist that? Come on in and all of a sudden the cows start moving and the chickens are disturbed a little bit and the baby wakes up and they admire the Christ child. And again, it's not in the Bible, so don't quote me. But I just kind of believe that before they left, one of those shepherds said, Ma'am, could I hold your baby? Before the night was over, the Christ child, the Savior of the world, is held in the arms of a smelly shepherd. Isn't it just like God? God who does things often so differently than we would. But that's how he chose to move into the neighborhood. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And I want to say to you that when you really experience God personally and powerfully, you cannot help but tell about what you have seen, heard, And experienced. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The whole community is abuzz. And maybe others even came that night saying, Ma'am, can we see the baby too? But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Many moms do that, don't they? First lock of hair, scrap. Booking with all these little mementos, first handprint, first footprint, first little baby shoes. Mary didn't have a smartphone or a video camera, but trust me, she had these memories locked in her mind and she pondered these things in her heart. Probably a lot different, by the way, than she first imagined it when Gabriel first told her of God's assignment for her her life. Can I just make one footnote here before we look at the last verse? You see, I believe this. God has an assignment for so many of you that's beyond the norm or outside of the average assignment. Every assignment from God is important. Every life is precious to God. But some of you, God may have an assignment that's kind of unusual. Can I tell you something I believe about that assignment? it's probably going to look real different than you think. When God first called me as a teenager to preach his gospel, I could never in a million years imagine that I'd be standing here in Albany, New York, talking to you, for God's sake. I would have imagined something very different. I'm glad I'm here. I wouldn't want to script it any other way. But oh, how different it turns out. When you give your life to God, it's better than you ever dreamed. Verse 20 is one of my favorites in this whole passage. It says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Think of that. They returned where? Back to the same hillside. Same neighborhood, same job, same smelly sheep. But now their lives were different because they'd experienced the wonder of the Savior. And that's really the challenge for us, isn't it? To be honest when we have the dramatic birth of God in our lives, when he comes and saves us and forgives all of our sin and adopts us into his family and begins to change us from the inside out, we go back, same family, usually the same job, same neighborhood, same school. But our challenge is to keep that wonder aligned. I'll I'll tell you who I respect in this church. I'll tell you who I respect are some of the super senior saints at Grace Fellowship at all of our locations who've maybe been following Jesus now for decades and they still are growing, they're still learning, they're still serving him faithfully and representing him well. Wow, I respect those men and women. You say, how can they do that year after year after year? You know what I think it is? I think they've never lost the wonder that the eternal God actually loved them enough to die on a rugged cross so that they could be saved forever. They've never lost the wonder of that. And I pray you never lose that either. A poet wrote, when the song of the angel is silent, when the star in the sky is asleep, when the kings and princes are home and the shepherds have returned to their sheep, when the manger is darkened and still, and when Bethlehem is quiet again, when Jesus has been gladly welcomed, then the work of Christmas begins. Well, there it is. You've heard that old, old story once again, but here's the wonder of it. It's absolutely true that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross, an atoning death, to rise again and to offer that life and that love and that forgiveness free. And oh my goodness, when you invite him in, he forgives your sins. He adopts you into his family and he begins to change you from the inside out. Thank you, Lord, that you changed lives then and you're still changing lives today today. We want to be a part of that. We invite you to change us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.